You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. My, um, my name is Ross. I'm the senior pastor here, and I I want to welcome you if you're visiting. Um, man, we're so glad you're here. We don't think you're here by accident in any way. In fact, uh, like probably why you're here, some of you, you're here, you were here to see uh, these children sing. Um, it was fantastic. I, in fact, when I see the, the kids up here singing, um, I am always amazed at Ruth Yeager. Is Ruth in here? This, is she? Ruth, can we thank you? Did you... She, um, Ruth makes this look easy, but I'm telling you, that was not easy at all. That, um, I, I, I see that. I'm reminded of when I was growing up in church. We called it children's church, and, um, and it was like a full contact sport. In fact, I uh, think of the people that used to help out with children. First of all, I can't believe they, had, they could find any adults to help out with children's church, uh, but they did. And I always think about Mrs. Stubbefield. I've probably told you about her before. She was my fourth grade uh, Sunday school teacher. She was our uh, kind of children's church person they put us with. She was, uh, in my mind, when I, when I think back of Mrs. Stubbefield, um, when I was in the fourth grade, uh, she was 76 years old. She was a widow, and she showed up every Sunday morning. And I'll tell you about Mrs. Stubbefield. She had... Uh, a group of the rowdiest uh, fourth grade boys, all right, and led by three of them. I was one of them. Um, the other was Nathan Harwell uh, and Garrett Garrick Abrig, and uh, the three of us. So those two, they were far worse than I was. Um, they were, they were. In fact, we'll talk about them in the passage today. They were terrible. Um, but I mean, we, I mean, listen, the, the, the folks that work in children's ministry, I mean, they show up, kids show up at church. Listen, you know this, they got a thousand other things on their mind than church. We, we were just like that. And, and this was the seventies and we showed up. We did not care about church one bit. I'll tell you what we cared about. We cared about the Dallas Cowboys because that's when they were really good. I mean, except for this year, they're, they're good again this year. Um, and, uh, but it's been, you know, it's been a long time, been a dry spell. And so, but I'm telling you, uh, Mrs. Stubbefield at 76 years old as a widow, I can tell you what she didn't care about was the Dallas Cowboys. And so we were at an impasse, but I'll tell you what she did. This is amazing. I, I, I'll never forget it. I didn't at all appreciate it then, but as I look back on it now, I'm, I'm actually, I'm amazed. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm amazed. She would go home on Sunday afternoons and she would turn on the television and she would watch the the Dallas Cowboys, and I mean, she didn't know she did not know anything about football, but she would take notes about it. I think just so she would have something to talk to us about. So we'd talk about the players, you know, Tony Dorsett and all that stuff. She never fully understood the whole thing about the monster. I mean, you know, Randy White, half man, half monster. We tried to explain it to her. She never got that. We. In fact, she was totally confused. I think she prayed for him. She was so worried about it, but. Um, <laughs> But she would talk to us. She would watch this thing she couldn't care less about because it, we were excited about it, and it was important to us. But she would watch it because it was important to us to earn the right to be heard, 
to talk about what was most critical for our souls. And as I think about that later in my life now, I think, I can't believe that she did that. I'm thinking about this 76-year-old widowed woman sitting at home in her house watching the Dallas Cowboys so that she could show up the next Sunday and talk to a bunch of rowdy fourth-grade boys who at the end of Sunday school would just be sweating like it was full-contact football or something so that she could tell us about Jesus. And, and so I, and I say all that to say it, 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 it leads me to what we're going to talk about in this passage in John's Gospel. So if you've got your Bibles, go, go to John's Gospel, John chapter 1, because this is John... And it's his version of Jesus' story, all right? So in Matthew and Luke, we have um, Matthew and Luke take us back to the manger, back to the birth. John, he takes us back to the mystery, all right? He takes us back before the birth. In fact, he takes us back before the Bible, uh, really, before the Bible began, back, back before creation. But what's amazing, and, and, and this, I couldn't still looked at it this week and thought, I wonder why... John, the gospel writer, drops in this section about John the Baptist, um, the locust-eating, sackcloth-wearing, desert-preaching, crazy cousin of Jesus in the middle of this beautiful poem about Jesus, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Because when you get to verse 6, which is where we're going to start, all of a sudden, in the middle of this beautiful, high, mysterious poem, John the Gospel writer drops in this section about John the Baptist. And I thought about Mrs. Stubblefield. And I'll show you why here. Look, look, at, look at John chapter 1, verse 6, and you'll, I think you'll see what it is that I'm saying. Here, here's the way he says it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, John, the gospel writer, is the only one that doesn't say John the Baptist, but we know that's who it is. He was a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So John, right here in the middle of the prologue, which is what we call the first 18 verses, of John's Gospel, drops in this bit about John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. If you look at verse 5, the verse just before it, you see that he talks about Jesus. Jesus is the light that shines. And then in the next verse, verse 9, we'll look at it in a moment, it says, Jesus is the true light. And then he gives us this description about John in the middle there. Verse 6, he was sent from God. Verse 7, to bear light, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And then in verse 8, he's not the light. In some way, so, so John's not the light, but he's, but he's like the mirror. You, you could say it that way. You might say it like this. If Jesus is the sun, John is the moon. In some ways, John's kind of like a, a super moon. The, the light of the sun shines during the day, and the moon is the comforting glow in the sky at night. I mean, you, you know this, the, the moon doesn't have any light of its own. It's, it's reflected light. 
It's, it's light that bounces off of the sun. The moon is a mirror. When the astronauts back in the 60s uh, walked on the moon, if, if in fact you believe that they did that, I, I do, by the way. Uh, they, they told us, I mean, so the, the, the moon's surface, it was like a, a, a gravelly pavement. It was a, a dark gray. It, um, uh, the, the color was, was a dark color. It was a bumpy surface. It only reflects, it's not a very good mirror, actually. It only reflects about 12% of the light that hits it. But during a full moon, the sun hits the moon, and it shines so bright that, that it makes all the other objects in the sky appear faint. I mean, you can hardly see anything else in the sky when the moon is full. It, it illuminates the sky so brightly. In fact, when the moon is full, it can even cast a shadow. And, and in certain times of the year, at certain years in the moon's cycle, the, the moon can be so close to the earth that we call it a supermoon. In fact, it's 20% brighter than normal. See, I think the reason John includes this here is because John, the gospel writer, is telling us about John the Baptist. He said, look, church, this is what we're to be. We're moons. The church is the moon. It's we're a super moon. We're, we're Mrs. Stubbefields. We're, we are to reflect the light that has come. We, we are to reflect the, the, we're not the light. We're to reflect the light. To reflect the light of the light that has come. See, the great news is that the church is a much better mirror than the moon is. At least we're equipped to be what we're supposed to be. And it also reminds us this. We don't have any light of our own. Which means when, when we shine the light, the light we shine is not our own light. That we're not here to make much of Bethel. Bethel is nothing. Jesus is everything. That's the light we shine. Now he goes on and look at verse 9. And he says this. We'll just look at these one verse at a time here for a couple of verses because I want us to get this clear. He says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So what this means, John's saying, is that that there's one source of light. So, so only one light. And, and everything that is lit up, so, so to speak, or is illuminated, is illuminated from one source. So of all the things that were created, everything that was created, only, only man is created in the image of God. We say it this way, this is the theological way to say it, is the Imago Dei. Mankind is created in the image of God. We're created to bear His image. We're created to bear His light, to reflect His glory. We're created in the image of God. Even after the fall of man in Genesis 3, Genesis 5.1, Genesis 9.6, God states two things. He's the creator of man, 
and man bears his image, even though sin has marred creation, even though sin has skewed what mankind looks like, we are still the image bearers of God. And so what John is saying in verse 9 is that the true light, though, the, the true source of this image, the source of the image that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This blows our mind, though. God and the image of God were becoming one in the incarnation. He's going to say it in verse 14, the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So here's what we would say. We, we can say, we can describe accurately the incarnation. We, we can describe it. We cannot, however, fully understand it. It's beyond our ability to fully understand what it means that, that the triune God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, stepped out of eternity into the temporal, out of eternity into history, and took on flesh and dwelt among us. We can describe it, cannot fully understand it. And yet Christianity absolutely depends on it. So that's verse 9. And then look at verse 10 and 11, because this is so important. Look at what it says. It says, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. So, two things about this. The world, the world that was made through Him, He he came into the world, and the world did not know him, and he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The world didn't know him, and his own people didn't receive him. So you might think about it this way. The world, you could call the Gentiles, didn't know him. His own people, the Jews, didn't receive him. Or you might say it this way. The pagans, or the irreligious people, did not know him. The religious people did not receive him. The New Testament talks about this all the time. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, in the first three, chapter of Ro first three chapters of Romans, says the exact same thing. In Romans chapter 1, he deals with the worldly people, the pagan people, if you will. He says it this way. In Romans chapter 1, about the worldly people, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're 
without excuse. Meaning, you can walk out sky, outside tonight, look up into the stars and go, okay, I know that there are stars in the sky and I did not make them. Something greater than me made the stars. So I'm without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We won't worship God. We'll just make our own gods with our own hands. That's what he says. In Romans chapter 2, he turns to the religious people and says, Hey, listen, you're no different. The religious people says, well, well, listen, we have the law. We believe in God. We'll follow his law. Paul says, you're in no better shape because the law you have, it can't make you righteous. It can't make you right before God. It can't get you to God because this conclusion in Romans 3 is this. No one's righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. So Paul says the same thing in Romans 1 through 3 as John says in John 1, 10 through 11. The world doesn't know him. His own doesn't receive him. Now listen. Talk about this for a second. The world does not know God because it does not want to. And it doesn't want to because it wants a God of its own making. A God that it can build for itself. And the reason you want to build a God for yourself is because you want to define the terms. You want to be in control. In other words, if you want to build your own God and you want to define your own terms, you really are saying, I want to be my own God. And the heart of the issue is ultimate control of your life. The word to know is actually a very intimate word. To know is, is to to recognize or to have intimate knowledge. It's a word that you would use to describe intimacy in marriage, the way a husband and a wife would know each other, to give themselves to each other. That's what it means. And listen, you can't know someone intimately and at the same time cling to ultimate control of your life. You can't. You can intellectually know about someone, but you can't intimately know someone until you've surrendered control, uh, until you trust them. The world did not know God because it didn't want to. Now to his own, to the religious people. They did not receive him because they didn't want to need him. Listen, they had all they needed or they thought they did. This is very important. They had all they needed or they thought they did. They believed in God. They had religion. They, they had a synagogue or a church, if you will. They, they paid tithes. They had priests. They said prayers. They had sacrifices. They had feasts. 
They had the law, which means they had rules they followed. They, had, they were very moral. They had traditions. Things they did and things they did not do. In fact, they saw the world this way. There were two kinds of people. There were good people and they were bad people. And we are the good people. Ask anybody. I mean, life is a long ledger sheet. It's, a, it's, it's one grand scale. Re religion? Listen, life lived this way. Religion is a mechanical life. You can believe in God. You can have religion. You can go to church. You can pay a tithe. You can have a, a pastor. You, you can say your prayers. You can have sacrifices. You can follow the rules. You can be moral. You can have all the traditions. You can do all the right things. And yet, not have real life. Did you know this? Because the very best that religion can do for you, the very best that religion can do for you, is a Pinocchio kind of life. And you can go through all of those motions hoping that one day you'll become a real boy, really, to no avail. It's not real. It's not alive. In fact, you're likely the one who's still pulling all the strings and trying to control all the outcomes. That's the truth. I'll read what one writer wrote. You're obeying. You're doing all this religion. Because in reality, what you're doing is you're trying to control God. And then you start to get mad because your life isn't going the way that you want. And then you say, well, I've been living a good life and I've been doing all of this and I've been doing all of that. Well, God owes me to be married to the person of my dreams, and that hasn't happened. And God owes me the career to go the way I want, but that hasn't happened. And then you start to get angry. And then that's the sign that the way that you've been obedient and the way that you've been behaving, well, that's just your radical sinfulness underneath all of it. You know, the other sign of a Pinocchio religion is that you look good on the outside, but on the inside you're riddled with sin. Internally, you feel superior to everybody else. You look down your nose at everybody else. You lord over your goodness over everybody else. In other words, you work very hard at being your own Savior, your own Lord, and that, that is the height of the essence of sin. You know what John's gospel is going to spell out 
over and over and over again, there's not two kinds of people, good and bad. There's sinners, and there's Jesus. That's the bottom line. Here's the great news, though. It comes in the very next verse. Look at verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now to help us with this, I want to turn over a couple of pages to John chapter 3, and I want us to meet Nicodemus. Now, I don't have the verses up on the board. If you've got your Bible, turn over to John chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible, it's probably maybe a familiar story. We'll walk through it. I, it won't be there very long. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He comes to Jesus in the dark. And coming to Jesus in the dark is not an accident, by the way. Nicodemus is a Jew. He's religious. He's moral. He's good. He, I mean, really, he is. He, he's good. He, he really is good. He's not bad. He, he really is good. Dad, he's the kind of guy you hope your daughter would marry. In chapter 3, verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus, in verse 2, he's having a difficult time. He's, he's having trouble receiving this. He's having trouble believing this, isn't he? What's he having trouble receiving and believing? I think, I think he's having trouble with the incarnation. Listen, what you're doing, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense unless God is with him. But that doesn't make sense. I think he's having trouble with the incarnation. I think he's saying, Jesus, look, I see you, but I can't see you. That the light's in front of me, but it is still dark. And I think that because of what Jesus, how Jesus answers him. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus is saying, look, what's, what I'm talking about is a spiritual birth. A spiritual birth. Not a, not a human birth. A spiritual birth, like John's talking about in John chapter 1. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, verse 7. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, 
and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes, where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus says to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He knew his Bible. He knew the law. He knew how he was supposed to live. He knew everything that he was supposed to do, except he didn't know how to have eternal life. He didn't know where Jesus came from. He didn't understand how Jesus was doing the things he was doing unless he had come from God. He could not see, and Jesus was right in front of him. And try as he may, there was nothing he could do he knew to be born again. And Jesus told him this was something the Spirit had to do. It was something God had to do. Well, back in John 1, John says, <clears throat> But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God, who were, not, who were born not of blood, nor of will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God does in spiritual birth what we could never do. So let me ask you, how is it that God does that? You know, I think there is this word, and it's an important word for us to consider. And it's the word receiving there in verse 12. But to all who did receive him. You know, receiving is an awfully difficult thing. You know, we talk about Christmas, and as we think about Christmas, we think about the Christmas story, and we often think about the shepherds, and we think about the wise men, and the wise men, they brought their gifts to Jesus, the gold, and the frankincense, and the myrrh, and we think, man, that's a really great thing, and we ought to bring our gifts to Jesus, the, the gold, and the frankincense, and the myrrh. We've heard it said it's better to give than to receive. We ought to be people who are Generous. And all those things are true. But I will tell you, 
To receive as this word means to receive. Probably the most humbling thing that a man or woman would ever do. It means to come to the point of your greatest need. To recognize there's absolutely nothing that you can do about it. And then to receive in all humility with no ounce of turning to pay anything back. And that, my friends, is a very hard thing to do. To receive. To receive. So Nicodemus was in a very difficult place in John chapter 3. He had everything. He had all the answers. He came at night. He didn't want anybody to see him. We actually see Nicodemus show up in a couple of other places in John's gospel. He shows up in chapter 7. He's there. There's a council that's going to bring Jesus. Nicodemus actually stands up. He's kind of lukewarm. He's kind of half-hearted, but he does stand up for Jesus a little bit there. And then we see Nicodemus in one more place. And it's actually a shocking place that we see him. It's towards the end of John's Gospel, and it's after Jesus has been arrested. It's after he's been put on trial. It's after Jesus has been uh, beaten, almost to the point of being unrecognizable. Stripped naked, had a crown of thorns smashed on his head. It's after he's been nailed to a cross and hung up on the side of a hill. It's after the sky's gone dark. It's after he said it is finished. It is after he has breathed his last. It is after he has died. And his body is hanging on the cross. And it's at that moment in John 19 that we see Nicodemus show up again. And it's actually pretty amazing is that Nicodemus shows up with another man named Joseph of Arimathea. And Nicodemus comes to literally take Jesus' body off of the cross in John chapter 19. And in John 19, there's not a lot of detail, but enough detail that we see Nicodemus holding in his arms the body of the one sacrificed for him. That he would have had to pry his hands from the nails. That the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, he would have pulled off the cross and laid that body on his own 
in some ways, you know what he was, he would have had to receive Jesus. He would have, in his arms, holding in the death of Jesus what he could never have done for himself. I think those words of Jesus might have gone through Nicodemus' mind as Moses lifted up the servant so the Son of Man would have been lifted up. You see, the God who became flesh so he could become sin and die. God became flesh so he could become sin and die. And if you will, Nicodemus is there. The incarnation means that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became our sin, died our death, and that there was a body to be removed from the cross. Not just a baby washed and wrapped in swaddling clothes but a body to be washed and wrapped in grave clothes. That's what the incarnation means. And we were introduced to Nicodemus at night, and here we see him in what it looks, in the, what it looks like in history's darkest moment, beholding, I think, for the first time. The full-orbed glory of the cross of Christ. Receiving the gift of Jesus. The gift of the incarnation. And in two days, that body that he washed would be raised to radiant glory, everlasting victory, King of kings, Lord of lords. That, that's the gift of Christmas. And you know what? I think that's what Mrs. Stubblefield knew. And when she was getting to the end of her life, doing everything she could to make sure a couple of ratty fourth graders knew who Jesus was. To those that receive, he gave the right. You know what it means, the right? Authority, liberty, power. He gave them the right. Nothing to earn, it's given, it's grace. Here's what it means. To those who believe in his name, it means I put my trust in him, uh, my trust in who he is and what it is that he did. That's what it means. To believe in his name, I put my trust in who he is and what it is that he did. It doesn't mean that I believe in his teachings and I follow his teachings and I try to be the best that I can be. It means that I believe in who he is and what he did. Not in what I can do, not in the basis of how good I will be and how well I will follow him in what he did, in, in who he is and what he did. That's what it means to believe in his name. And When you receive him and believe in his name, it means two things. You have the right to become the children of God. It means you are adopted. You're accepted. It means that your sins have been parted and you've been brought into a relationship of love and acceptance permanently. And it means that your DNA has changed because you are a new person, a new person, a real person. No 
no strings, no puppets, real life, real love. The question this morning is, do you know him? Not do you know him intellectually, do you know him intimately? Do you trust him? Do you believe him? Who he is, what he's done, what he is doing, what is to come. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, for your words that John the Apostle wrote down for us, for including the witness of John the Baptist for the true light that came into the world, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That he that knew no sin became sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. That all who receive Him, you've given the right to become your children. Father, I pray this morning that you, you would grant that. You'd grant the faith to believe it's not anything we can will or determine or muster up or earn. Or... Father, but you do that. You've done it in your Son, because of your Son, by His work. And so, Father, I pray you do it in us this morning and those that have never believed. Father, would you grant them the, the vision this morning to see your Son, Jesus. The one who gave his life for theirs. The Father was raised to new life. And all that he is. In exchange for all that they are. Father, that's the gift of Christmas. That's, that's why the incarnation. All that receive. Father, that Pray there'd be a bunch of receivers this morning for those who have. We ask this the only way we can in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.